Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the Cambridge Analytica podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. Recording this episode on April 10th, 2018, I'm Nicholas Terry, law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law, joined, of course, by my co-host, the Ted Nugent of podcasting, who is... Oh, Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. Who is unarmed. This <laughs> week, great welcome back to a great friend of the podcast uh, and uh, one of our favorite scholars, Jessica Roberts, the director of the Health Law and Policy Institute, and a George Butler research professor at the University of Houston Law Center. She specializes in health law, disability law, and genetics and the law. She was named a 2018 Greenwall Faculty Scholar in Bioethics and a 2016 Health Policy Scholar with Baylor College of Medicine Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy. Professor Roberts' research operates at the intersection of health law, ethics, and social justice. Her scholarship has appeared or is forthcoming in many of the top law, science, and medical journals. And her book on healthism, co-authored with Elizabeth Weeks Leonard, is forthcoming from the Cambridge University Press. So wonderful to have you back on the pod, Jessica. Wonderful to be here. You've got a recent piece that uh, you co-wrote with Elizabeth called Stigmatizing the Unhealthy, which is in uh, JLME. And it's about healthism and your broader uh, thesis with regard to that. But underlying the idea of healthism is really health discrimination. And I really would be interested in getting your broader sense about health discrimination, particularly across some sort of timeline. Because clearly, as a country, we became very interested in forms of discrimination uh, during the 60s and 70s. But health discrimination was not at least explicitly a part of the civil rights legislation. So I wondered if we could sort of maybe, and I I apologize if this is a bit artificial, but kind of break up the timeline of health discrimination across three periods. One, sort of pre-Affordable Care Act. Secondly, the Affordable Care Act years themselves, or maybe at least the ideal dealing with health discrimination as put forward by the Affordable Care Act. And now, thirdly, looking at sort of a post-ACA Trump administration kind of world and seeing just what we mean by health discrimination, how health discrimination has changed, how our legislative and regulatory reactions to health discrimination have changed over those three periods. A few things about health discrimination itself. One of the interesting things uh, about this idea for me, since I started writing about it at the very beginning of my career and then culminating in the forthcoming book with Elizabeth is what makes health discrimination wrong or when is health discrimination wrong? Because when whether or not a person is considered to be healthy can be highly relevant for a lot of decision makers. So particularly health insurers or employers might want to know your relative health because it can allow them to make better informed decisions. So this project really over the long term has been, you know, under what circumstances is it okay to consider health and these health-related uh, statuses and behaviors and, and when is it problematic? Uh, so before the Af- 
Affordable Care Act, we did have some laws and regulations prohibiting the circumstances under which we could look at certain types of health conditions, right? So of course, you know, HIPAA has a non-discrimination rule. Uh, We also have the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act saying that health insurers and employers are not supposed to think about genetic information. You know, we have the Americans with Disabilities Act regulating uh, employment, uh, you know, state government of public accommodations. So there is precedent for telling folks there are some conditions under which when you think about health, that is problematic from an anti-discrimination perspective. So then comes along, so that's the, the, I would say that the pre-Affordable Care Act era, we had some some piecemeal legislation and regulation that was tiptoeing around this idea that it can be problematic under certain circumstances to treat people differently or to treat some people worse based on their health. Um, and then, you know, with the Affordable Care Act, you know, there was quite clearly we had, you know, insurers being much more limited on the kinds of, of health-related information that they could consider, right? Um, and, you know, particularly when we're thinking about pre-existing conditions and all that, plus we, you know, we have Section 1557, which itself is this healthcare civil right for certain traditionally protected groups, right? So even though that's not technically about healthism, it certainly intersects with uh, healthism. Um, you know, with respect to, you know, we're thinking about prohibiting discrimination based on, you know, age or disability, sex, race, all of that. So I think we had a period where health discrimination was, uh, at least we were trying to, we, we were doing more, taking more active steps, I think, to to regulate and to stop health insurers in particular from discriminating on the basis of health. And then now it, it, it's hard to know, um, you know, what's what's next uh, in terms of which parts of the Affordable Care Act are going to stay intact and which are not. Um, you, know, you know, one thing in, in particular, you know, we might have a, a rollback of some of the, the steps we took forward for folks who are transgender. Also, too, this was uh, about a, a year ago, um, we had a, a bill proposed that was going to alter some of the the wellness regs um, and perhaps make it make it easier for uh, to to look at an employee's health related information. Uh, we're also seeing some rollbacks with respect or some proposed rollbacks with respect to the Americans with Disabilities Act, where we might be dulling some of the protections that individuals have regarding public accommodations and discrimination on the basis of disability. So I hope that the Affordable Care Act was not the golden era for or prohibiting healthism, but some of the advances that we saw might be, the pendulum might be swinging back in the other direction, unfortunately. What interests me about most of the ACA is that it seems designed to take away the incentive to discriminate, right? If you if you can't charge more for people who have a pre-existing condition, you know, all of those kind of rules basically sort of guts discrimination in the health space. And And I've always been slightly interested as to why the ACA, which generally took that approach, nevertheless has Section 1557 in it. Now, lest any listener think that I disagree in any way with the substance of 1557, goodness no. And what a shame the regs are in such trouble. But I think it's a, a quite a different kind of tack from the rest of the ACA, which, as I say, I think 
uh, pulled away the the reasons or the ability to discriminate rather than prohibiting the discrimination, if that's a distinction you can accept. Sure, absolutely. And I think that that's something uh, in my work with Elizabeth that we've considered, uh, you know, it's not been our goal to say that health insurers or employers or, you know, bad actors who are seeking to intentionally hurt people. The reality is the way we had structured our health insurance system uh, and, and the way we've tied employment to health insurance, there's perfectly rational reasons, right, for discriminating based on health because those folks are worse risks uh, and they're more expensive. And so it's a totally rational decision. And so by taking away some of those cost incentives and saying, no, 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 you you can't use this information, uh, you know, to, to make underwriting decisions or rating decisions. Yeah, we, we've taken away some of the the uh, the possible ben- the benefits to discriminating. Um, Section 1557 is interesting because uh, it's it's the separate civil right. And so the question is, you know, why do we need this civil right? Um, and in, in one part, you know, because it's going to apply beyond the health insurance context, but that is something that was particularly, its application to health insurance is particularly important beyond healthism. And so I'll say a little bit about that, right? So section 1557 says that, you know, you can't discriminate if you're a you know, federally funded healthcare entity, you know, on the basis of these statuses protected by other statutes, but it boils down to, you know, the usual suspects of race, national origin, sex, age, disability. Now, sex had not previously had protection. So that's one thing that made section 1557 novel. Uh, something else that made it important is that in, in the context of the ADA, you actually had this insurance safe harbor, at least for employers. So the ADA, employment title allowed health insurers to discriminate on the basis of disability by saying, no, no, that's something different. Also, too, there was um, outside of employment, just health insurers generally in the private market could discriminate on the basis of health condition. And there is a a case that's actually a a Posner opinion where the plaintiffs had HIV-AIDS and they were challenging this uh, health insurance policy that had these really damaging AIDS caps. We're saying, you know, we're not going to pay out past a certain point to the to the to the point of where it was actually almost making those policies useless to those individuals. Uh, and so they challenged. They said, "Hey, this product that you're offering this discriminates on the basis of our HIV/AIDS status because these plans that you're offering to sell us are basically worthless." And the way the court came out, they said, "Oh no, you know, a public accommodation." can decide whatever it wants to sell. That's its product. So that's its prerogative. So you wouldn't tell a camera store that it it had to stock cameras specifically designed for people with disabilities. All the ADA says is that you have to let the people with disabilities in the door. And so the idea was, oh, well, you get access to the same bad insurance that everyone else gets access to. Therefore, it's not discrimination. And so I think that part of what Section 1557 is trying to do is maybe get at health insurance and get at those kinds of decisions to, to try to, you know, provide better coverage, right? And we've seen that with some of the challenges to, to pharmaceutical pricing. So I would say that's why we need a separate provision. And that's a very long-winded answer. <laughs> no, it's very helpful. I wonder whether the, the sort of almost gentle discrimination that you discuss in the stigma piece, uh, talking about obesity and smoking, whether in fact uh, that's been sort of ramped up in the last uh, year and a half or so, um, as we see stigmatizing on the basis of poverty and inability.
ability to find work and this whole sort of weaponizing of social and economic status. So I absolutely, uh, it's it's no surprise that a lot of these stigmatized health conditions correlate strongly with poverty. So folks that are in poverty are more likely to use tobacco. They're more likely to be overweight. Um, and actually, a, a piece that I have in progress, co-authored with my husband, looks at a HUD policy that's the, a smoking ban, right? And saying that, you know, you can't smoke within a, a certain distance from public housing and the kinds of implications there and what that might mean. Um, and one of the things that, that we find troubling about this new regulation, it, it leaves open the enforcement mechanism. So it's saying, okay, well, you know, you can use... Well, the things that you typically, these instruments you typically use, the, the housing authority can use those uh, those tactics to enforce this new policy. And of course, a very typical lease enforcement mechanism would be eviction, right? Uh, and so you can imagine a situation where someone offends a number of times by smoking in their public housing, you know, and it's very difficult to quit smoking and could find their, themselves evicted. And the idea that this is something that is good for public health, I find troubling because it's certainly worse to be homeless than it is to be a smoker. And so, you know, things that I think might look like a good policy on the surface, like, okay, great, we're going to, you know, make sure that all of this, you know, public housing is going to be smoke free. That sounds great. But when you break it down and you think about how sticky some of these problems are, we could actually be doing more harm than good for certain vulnerable populations. Do you allow for sort of safe harbors, if you like, from the... um, the health discrimination, the healthism that you identify both in this piece and, and in your other work with Elizabeth, in that, you know, I think some kind, some level of quote discrimination against smokers, against the obese could perhaps be at least more tolerable if they were accompanied by positive attempts to help folks. I mean, you know, is is a ban on smoking at least somewhat better if it's accompanied by really good cessation education yes. and so on? Issues with regard to uh, obesity, uh, are there methods of dealing with that? I mean, you can even see it in the context of, you know, the, the work requirements would would a work requirement in medicaid while still making us feel perhaps a little nervous be more palatable if there was genuine new job training and things like that that went along with it absolutely so i so one of the things that dave and i at least plan to say in this this essay that we've been working on related to housing is that you know if there were some if there was support for cessation right so if if in addition to banning smokers or telling smokers you know, that they have to be a certain distance from the door if the if they also had access to some kind of support to quit smoking I think that that is a good policy right because you're saying all right we're gonna we're, we're going to ban this but we're not going to just leave you out in the cold we're going to help move you forward and we're going to empower you to make better choices uh, and I think that this actually does foreshadow a little bit into some of the the nudging because it really comes down to empowering people to make better choices about their own health. So in the greater book project, Elizabeth and I would definitely say that there are some circumstances where, you know, discriminating on the basis of health, or we say differentiating because it's more of a value neutral sounding word. We say, you know, differentiating based on health
health might not always be discrimination. Sometimes, you know, it's not only palatable, it's desirable. We want to allow these kinds of distinctions because it's it's actually going to be positive. And so the the way we break down, you know, we, we distinguish what we say, you know, the, the good health uh, status distinctions from the bad health, health status distinctions is we introduce some governing principles. Uh, we discuss a couple of them in that JLME article. So we say, you know, things that, you know, help eliminate disparities so that that can promote health equity. Uh, we have, so we have health, so we have health equality, we have health justice, we have health welfare, and we have health liberty. And we say that any policy that differentiates based on health, you can look at these different values. And if it produces enough positive effects, well, then that might be a good health-based differentiation. So we would not want to, you know, eliminate the ability to make that distinction. And the, the tobacco cessation is a great example because, right, that's something, that's a program that specifically targets a population, smokers, but separating smokers from non-smokers, it actually has a positive impact because it's going to encourage them to make a better decision opposed to just sort of piling on and adding additional disadvantage. But there are definitely examples where it's it's we think that it is a good thing to differentiate based on health. It's not always discrimination. And maybe just to finish out that thought, just giving a few of those good examples or more of them if you'd like. When we're thinking about, you know, what might be some positive examples, anything really that takes a health-related condition and says, okay, you know, we are going to encourage you to make a better choice and we're going to give you the resources to make better choices. So this is something key. This comes in uh, in some of the nudge literature as well, right? Is, is if you, you know, you want people to make better choices, give them the ability to make better choices. So, you know, if you give, if you have, you know, employees say that are, you know, overweight and you can find a way that is not alienating to provide them with opportunities to exercise or to provide them with uh, healthier food, then that might be a, an example of a policy where, you know, making that distinction to give them access to a potential benefit is something that's justifiable. So you can imagine, you know, some workplace wellness programs would be a good health-based distinction. You know, if you can, if you find out that someone has high blood pressure and they didn't know it, and then you can give them access to, to resources to lower their blood pressure, I would say, you know, that would definitely be something that is a, is a good thing. Totally. I mean, I, and I think uh, even, I, I've been very critical about wellness programs in this uh, piece I did with Gordon Hull in Biosocieties, but even we acknowledge similarly that there are situations where, you know, you do, you do want to make things available to people. And I think, you know, putting a gym on at the workplace or on a campus uh, for a workplace seems really helpful and a way to help folks out. Um, but of course, you know, as we also have know from this literature, there's all sorts of silly things. Uh, one of the things that we covered was a company that tried to slow down its elevators so that people would take the stairs. And I think that's that segues maybe into the the nudging because that's one of the, the reasons that I, I wanted to write about nudges uh, because they became so popular, at least for a while. I think they're, they're still popular, but they, they seem to be everywhere. And we ended up with some of these kind of silly little interventions like what you're describing. We're like, oh, we're going to make this one little tweak. And by making the elevator slower, if someone wants to be on time for their meeting, they're going to have to run up the stairs. Was that the idea? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> Actually, I think it may have been adopted at the Maryland Law School. I think this may be one of our, our key secrets about, you know, we're, we're told that the reason the elevators are slow here is because the final funder for the building did not come through. 
but in fact, uh, we. In <laughs> fact, it's nudging you towards greater health, obviously. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so this is this is a good segue to the, the your review of Sunstein uh, that's coming out in the Michigan Law Review. Our for those of you are our, our non-law school listeners, the Michigan Law Review is like the marquee best place to do a book review, I think. And um, you've gotten a very you got a positive response from Cass himself about the review, and it's just fantastic. So I was wondering if you could describe, you know, what what's the main argument of Sunstein and what do you think he needs to be supplemented with? He's been writing about nudges for over a, a decade at this point. And so there's a really rich literature. Uh, and what he tries to do in this most recent book, and it's called The, the Ethics of Influence, and it came out um, with K- Cambridge University Press in 2016, is he tries to differentiate between ethical and unethical nudging by governments. And so saying that, okay, you know, we can manipulate the choice architecture to improve decision making. And when is it appropriate for a government to take those steps to influence its citizens? Um, and, you know, not unlike me and Elizabeth with, with you know, we offer four guiding values. Uh, and, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, I had recently read his book when, when, when we were thinking through how we were going to distinguish between good and bad healthism. Uh, so Sunstein offers four guiding values for ethical nudging. He says that governments should consider welfare, autonomy, dignity, and self-government when they're deciding what the the proper actions would be for the ethical state. Uh, And his framework, uh, I I really like it. I'm I'm a person that enjoys value pluralism because I think it's something that is, it's nice that it's flexible. Uh, And so one of the things that Sunstein says is, you know, the benefit to looking at these four different values is, you know, you can be a, you know, a welfareist or you can be, you know, a, a libertarian who's concerned with autonomy and, you know, the the calculus can be the same, right? We, we don't have to argue about is autonomy more important than welfare, you know, or is dignity more important than autonomy or something like that, you know, by just adopting these four values and thinking about them together, we can generally say, okay, you know, this intervention looks good, right? You know, we're creating a positive default that's getting people to save money. So that's, you know, that's something that is good from, you know, the, the standpoint of, you know, it's going to increase your welfare, if you're going to save more money, you know, if you can opt out of the default, that's not going to hurt your autonomy, you know, your dignity, you're being respected as a as a person. Um, and then, you know, assuming that you live in a democracy that has a- adopted this intervention, right, that's going to allow for self-government. So he says, you know, this framework is good, because, you know, it allows us to have conversations about ethical nudging without getting into some of those philosophical quibbles about, you know, which values the most important value. But one of the things that has frustrated me about the literature on nudging is that while a lot of people are responsible to nudging, everyone is not universally nudgeable. And so, you know, going back to, you know, thinking about poverty, you know, that that people without resources, without access to meaningful choices can't be nudged quite as easily. Uh, and in the and in the book review, I have a couple different examples, you know, taking popular nudges and looking at how they 
don't necessarily work for certain populations, you know, mainly uh, lower income people. And, you know, so an example would be, you know, one very popular nudge is let's put the healthy food at the front of the grocery store, right? And that, you know, right up front where you're going to see it. And if you have healthier food within reach, we as human beings, we tend to just eat what's in front of us, right? And so we're more likely to buy produce um, if it is located somewhere that's visible uh, in the grocery store. But the point that I make in the book review is that, you know, if you can't afford produce, no matter where you put it in the grocery store, you're not going to be able to buy it. Um, So what I do in the book review is I go through what I call the distributive justice concerns that can be raised by certain types of nudges. And I say that Sustain's framework can benefit from adding a fifth value, distributive justice, to this conversation that governments might have about ethical nudging. And I think there are so many ways in which your work dovetails with findings in both philosophy and behavioral economics. And you know, I hope the listeners will indulge me because I just wanted to <laughs> describe these two findings that remind me of your idea of the nudge-proof population or the hard-to-nudge population. One being the more commonly known one, Sendel Mullenathan's uh, book on scarcity, Why Having So Little Means So Much, where he describes you know the difficulties of many poorer populations. But that idea was really anticipated by a philosopher in 2007, uh, Charles Corellis, in this book called The Persistence of Poverty, Why the Economics of the Well-Off Can't Help the Poor. And that book has this wonderful example that says, you know, imagine if you are uh, have a couple of dirty dishes in the sink, you'll go and, you know, deal with them and do the dirty dishes, get them out of your way and clean them up. But if you've got like a giant pile of dishes, usually th- that can just feed on itself to the point where you're just like, oh my gosh, do I really want to do these dishes or not? And, you know, he has all of these different examples, these very sort of um, interestingly like psychological thought experiments where he says, you know, someone with a whole bunch of problems is just facing a different life world, a different right. sort of situation than, than you know, a lot of the people that are the model citizens in these nudge theories. And I was just so glad to see you take that on. Yeah. And so that's something, right, when you're talking about the multiple dishes piling up in the sink, right? As we see costs of acting differently increasing, right? We can, the, the fact that a person that has less free time and fewer resources, you know, opting out of a, a default is much more challenging, right? So, and that's the concept of an effort tax. So, you know, people with these limited resources can't can't make the decisions as easily, right? So they might stay with even a suboptimal default longer than we would expect someone with more resources. Um, and then that's something that can do real harm. And I'm glad you like the piece because one of the things that I, I make a kind of a controversial claim, which is, you know, when we're talking about this law and economics, you know, there's a concept of Pareto improving, right? And so if we can make at least some people better off and no one's worse off, that's that's a good thing. Uh, but I say that, you know, even something that is Pareto improving, if the people that are left unmoved are the ones facing all of the disadvantages, the ones with all the dirty dishes, that that in and of itself can raise ethical concerns, right? That there's something about increasing disparities, even if you're not, even if you're not putting an additional dish in the pile, the fact that some people are getting moved forward and you're not, uh, I, I think raises ethical concerns personally. And I did get a lot of pushback on on that particular point I make in the piece. So I'm a big fan of Sunstein's work. And I actually remember that uh, after I read the first book, I landed at Schiphol Airport not long uh, thereafter and rushed uh, 
uh, after clearing customs to uh, confirm one of the points he made in the book that I won't go into here. <laughs> but I did have a, a, a broader question about nudging and sort of the behavioral economics movement. Will we look back on it as a sort of failed neoliberal attempt to find a place for the market that they were uh, comfortable with and that maybe we're going to be looking over the next decade or so at dueling prescriptive models rather than uh, trying to find a sort of a soft middle. Yes. And so I think that there is something really appealing about this concept of, of libertarian paternalism, right? Because it's because it sounds oxymoronic, right? And it sounds like we're trying to have our cake and, and eat it too. And that, you know, we can just, we can improve people's lives by just making these little gentle tweaks and that, you know, that, and that it'll have the desired effect. And I, I think that we might find ourselves in, in a world later. So, so one of the nice things about nudges, I'll say he has in, in this particular book, um, he goes through it and talks to, has survey data from people from all across the ideological spectrum. And one of the great things about nudges is that they are almost uniformly popular. And so I mentioned this a little bit in the, the book review. So, you know, whether or not you consider yourself conservative or liberal, most people are okay with at least certain kinds of nudges, specifically the kinds of nudges that give you access to more information so you yourself can make a, a better choice on your part. Um, so one of the things that's nice about the kind of hands-off approach to nudges, the fact that they rely on this gentle prodding is that, you know, I, I think that they allow us to be comfortable with policy interventions where if it was something that was more heavy-handed, we would feel less comfortable. So the fact that nudges have a light touch is to their advantage. But uh -huh. the fact that nudges have a light yeah. touch might be to their disadvantage because there might actually be more effective ways of getting at the outcomes that we want. I'll link you on the show notes my little uh, salvo uh, with respect to Nick's question and you know the, the broader perspective on nudges. I mean, there is a really interesting literature, critical literature emerging on nudges by people like Will Davies, a sociologist in England, and others that just take out a more methodologically uh, holist account or you know, sociological, social perspective. And I do think, but, but you know, on the other hand, as you said, Jessica, I mean, it really is the lingua franca of policy discourse now. You can't really do much without uh, running into it. But the funniest thing about Sunstein I have to throw in here is that, you know, he recently published this piece called uh, You Ruined Popcorn. <laughs> And, and it was about, you know, there was some study where people said, I don't want to know how many calories are in popcorn. I used to be able to go to the movie and enjoy the movie. And now I know that I've just eaten 1,200 calories of butter and carbs. And, you know, and he he is tortured by this revelation. He's very sort of thinking, oh, my goodness, maybe, you know, my entire fallback from banning things to recommending taxes to, for things to just giving people information, maybe none of it's good. You know, and it's... <laughs> Yeah, it's like, well, we can't mandate it and we don't want to make it more expensive. So maybe we'll just tell you, you know, we don't want a popcorn tax. So we'll just tell you how many calories are in that butter. And then people are saying, well, that's re resulted in a welfare decrease for me. Yes. Yes. <laughs> he would be a great guest on The Simpsons. 
to, to, to put Sunstein up against Homer. Uh, oh, yes. Right? Oh, yes. Isn't that the, the collision that you're talking about? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, and he's completely... I mean, and it's like his, he has a New Yorker story where he talks about being uh, presented as, uh, in a conspiracy theory, as someone who himself is spinning a conspiracy. And in the end, he just sort of is like, well, that's free speech and that's America. And, you know, it's 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 very interesting. I don't know. I mean, I think the, the current politics are, are pushing everyone in n- different directions. Uh, but that's interesting, though. I, so, you know, in, in the, the book, when he talks about, you know, the different kinds of nudges, uh, this information enhancing nudge that's supposed to, you know, slow us down and get us to think more carefully, he calls that a boost, right? So, you know, when you give the nutritional information, that's a that's a boost because now, you know, you can make a, a better choice. But maybe what we need is we need to put the nutritional information under some kind of a screen, right? So we can decide it won't infringe on our autonomy whether or not we have access to the calories, right? That we can decide whether or not we want to know or something. And that's the maybe that's the next step. And I can see the larvae article title now, the HIPAA visor meets... Uh, <laughs> Calorie disclosure. But anyway, we are running out of time. So I've got to get in your uh, perspective on bio rights and progressive uh, ownership here, uh, Jessica. And I, I'm sorry to put you on the spot sure. to do it relatively quickly. But I mean, could you give our uh, give us a sense of your latest piece on this great series of work you've been doing with respect to people's sense of ownership over their information, their data and the healthcare system? Sure. So one puzzle that I've been tackling for a while is, you know, whether or not we have some kind of ownership interest in our genetic data uh, or even in our you know, DNA specimens. And uh, a piece that I just had come out in the Notre Dame Law Review called Progressive Genetic Ownership, what I do there uh, is I take this school of thought called progressive property, which in property law has been an answer to uh, the neoclassic uh, law and economics. So, you know, instead of thinking of people as, you know, welfare maximizing rational actors, we really need to to take account of the, the different sorts of things that motivate uh, with respect to how we feel about ownership and how we execute our ownership rights. Um, and what I do, the, the big attack in that article is I say that bioethicists have been talking about, you know, whether or not we should own our data and all these different conversations you know, and bioethicists are supposed to be deontological thinking about concerns related to, you know, autonomy and privacy and and also welfare, but all of these different important bioethical principles and that really bioethicists without knowing it, we've been entrenched in this law and economics model ourselves. And we've been just engaging in this sort of cost benefit analysis and making assumptions about, you know, welfare maximization uh, and the like. And that what we really need is we need to take the insights from this progressive property school of thought and import them into the bioethical conversations uh, about the ownership of genetic data and biospecimens. So that's one piece. Um, And then a piece that I've had in progress for a while is something that I've called bio rights. And so so I I did, I sort of did the the property model for how to think about these things. Um, And then in terms of in, in bio rights, the thing that I've been thinking about is, you know, how the law breaks down the different 
different rights that we have with respect to our bodies. Uh, so I, I think about the genetic data and the biospecimens, but I also am trying to think more broadly too about the different rights individual people want with respect to their bodies. And the tentative conclusion there is we might want to rely on something that looks more like a contract model where we give individuals information so that they can negotiate some of these rights ex ante, you know, before they end up feeling exploited, uh, you know, either or before they end up feeling like, you know, they missed out on the commercialization of a product or something. So, you know, when I wrote the property paper, everyone was like, oh, maybe this isn't a property question. Maybe it's a contract question. So my next step is I'm going to write the contract paper. Fantastic. I think it is such a great uh, set of moves to be making. Um, I was just special editor of this uh, journal issue on new approaches to law and economics or moving past the older paradigms and, and towards something like this progressive property paradigm and other other moves. So I was thrilled to see this uh, in the health literature. And I'm excited too. I think uh, a, a one outgrowth of this too um, is, I, is I'm hoping to write a series of articles with Jen Ruger about the capability approach to genetic data and really thinking about you know the, the, the best way to regulate genetic data to facilitate social justice. Uh, so I might be delving into some more philosophical work as well, which is which is exciting, sort of beyond the law reviews, which is always a little intimidating, but it's definitely fun to get out there into those peer-reviewed journals. Ah, <laughs> uh, indeed. <laughs> and that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to <laughs> Professor Roberts for joining us. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at J Roberts, U-H-L-C, J-R-O-B-E-R-T-S-U-H-L-C. Always fun having you on the pod, Jessica. Thank you. It was a pleasure. We post our show notes at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Frank. At Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.